Greetings again, everyone. When you see a trial on television, or you see someone perhaps before the American Congress or one of the investigating committees, take the fifth, as they have so many times. You saw leaders of the Worldwide Church of God take the fifth before the State Attorney General in trials when the church was in receivership. One of the leaders who was ordained as an evangelist and was actually looked upon by the majority of the membership as my father's successor and certainly was totally in charge of the organization for that period of time, took the Fifth Amendment many times throughout an entire day. I read many of the depositions. Every time they asked him a question, he said, I will not answer on the grounds that what I say may tend to incriminate me. Basically, when someone does that, we automatically assume they are guilty, don't we? Why, the dirty crook? Got to be guilty. He's afraid to answer. And he blatantly says that he's taking the Fifth Amendment because if he does answer, what he says might tend to incriminate him. Do you think that's a good law or a bad law? What I want to talk to you today has to do about, has to do with personal privacy, that part of freedom and liberty that we call privacy. I like my privacy. Matter of fact, uh, some of you may have tried to call me recently and can't get through. That's my fault. I've changed my unlisted telephone number for about the third time. I got tired of more and more people knowing it. And finally, I'm getting calls from people who have various mental problems or perhaps are drinking or whatever it three and four in the morning, and I value my sleep. I don't mind taking genuine calls, but, uh, you know, freaks and nuts, I can do without. So every now and then, because I do value my privacy, I will change the number, and I will give it out to individuals that I feel ought to have it. Yet, I am not really a very private person. For example, I could be very much put upon by magazines, newspapers, radio and television. I could have blatant, uh, total, scurrilous things said of me that are not true, and I would not have the grounds for a libel suit that you would have. You know why? Because when you're a public person, the libel laws are somewhat different, and trying to win a case of libel against a person in the public eye is very, very difficult, where you as a private person whose name is not known to the general public would probably win a libel suit a lot easier than I could. There's information on me and on you down here in Tyler, if you live in Tyler, otherwise the community where you are, in the Consumer Credit Union. If you want to get down and buy an automobile, buy a new home, all the various people who might be lenders to whom you are applying for a loan will apply to the Consumer Credit Union, and they will just get a computer, and, and they will give your Social Security number, your SS number, and zip, it'll print it out on a little screen, it will tell you whether or not, I know whether or not the people renting a home that we have have been late. They've been late only one rental payment that they know about in the Consumer Credit Union. I know that, so they were a good credit risk. You know, my uh, compadre here, Ron Dart, and I had a lot of fun one day, and yet it, it did, it was kind of chilling. It was fun, but it was chilling. We're being given, I don't know whether it's a half million or what, a dollar's worth of computer equipment. It's a rather early generation computer system. It's rather a large bit of equipment that might fill a large room and was going to cause a lot of additional air conditioning to be installed. But the gentleman who was going to donate it to the church was illustrating to us some of the programs he had written. 
And since he'd written the programs, and of course, he's the guy that sells time-sharing to computer terminals all over town. He has books for some of the colleges here locally, uh, the county jail. Your county tax records, by the way, are all firmly ensconced and electronically filed away in the computer that we looked at. I could have found out exactly if I'd wanted to know how much tax anybody in this room paid if you live in this county. You might not live in this county. Last year. It's kind of interesting. And yet it was kind of chilling. Any given morning, if he wants to entertain himself, he goes down there and finds out who was arrested for what in the last 24 hours. Are they in a cell? Have they been let go? Their name, address, and everything about them. Now, when I say FBI, CIA, IRS, Social Security, Consumer Credit, Federal, State, and County, and City agencies, investigatory organizations, the firearms and tobacco people, the United States Customs Bureau, etc., probably to some degree, every one of those agencies have a file on you. I have a file back in Washington, D.C. under my service number, 5689620. I'll never forget that number, nor will I forget my social security number. It's not tattooed on me yet, but I have it in my mind. I'm not going to tell you what it is, because I value my privacy, what there is of it. Do you have a right to privacy? Do you have a right to refuse to answer questions to given individuals? even a spiritual organization, on the grounds that you value your privacy. Generations of Ambassador College students came to what has been billed as God's College, the West Point of the work, that idyllic, beautiful place that was the goal of hundreds upon hundreds, no, thousands is more correct, of young children from the time of their earliest awareness. And those generations of young students were taught the following. He is governed best who is governed least. That was axiomatic at Ambassador College. In 1947, 48, 49, that statement was given out of the pulpit in student assemblies and forums. It was preached out of the pulpit. It was written in literature. As the years went by and government was preached and established and uh, basically put in place in the church and as the offices, quote-unquote, and they became rank, which is an odor and not a function of the ministry, was put in place in the church, the following statement was made time and time again. I have only so much authority over you as you permit. Isn't that true? Many of you have heard that, heard it dozens of times. That was axiomatic. Generations of students and members of God's church have heard that statement. They didn't know that there was a parenthetic, understood statement that followed that statement. I have only so much authority over you as you allow me to have. But if you don't allow me to have total control over you, I'll put you out. Now, they didn't know that that was in parenthesis after this first statement, which makes it sound as if, hey, that's great. Well, I've decided only to give you authority only over that part of my life, which is my public life. But my private life, I mean, private decisions involving my job, my home, where my kids go to school, uh, my wife, 
child-rearing practices, husband-wife relationships, whether I buy a pink truck or a blue truck, whether I work as a stockbroker or a truck driver, whether I put money in the bank above $1,000, which at one time was veritably called a sin in the church, whether my wife uses makeup or I have my sideburns below the lobe of my ear, whether my son, 17, has his, his hair at or below the collar of his shirt, uh, whether or not my young 19-year-old boy decides to go and get a perm, uh, whether my kids like Michael Jackson or whether at that era they liked Elvis Presley or not, which could have been a sin in the church. I'm not going to permit you, one might have said, to tell me what to do in that area of my life. Fine, you're out. That's what they didn't tell you. You were told you are going to be governed only insofar as you allow the government of the church to rule over you. Recently, I watched an interesting expose of a lawsuit by some outraged parents whose children were going to a Baptist parochial school somewhere in the country, I think up in New England. It was on Good Morning America, and the parents had sued the school. It seemed that just before graduation here in 1984, several of the seniors who were honor students, top quality students, straight A's and on and on, the best students in the school, had gone to one of the parents' homes and they'd had a party where there had been drinking and dancing. <gasps> Present. Well, Baptists don't drink and they don't dance. The school learned of it through an informer. I guess one of the kids became guilt-ridden. Who knows, maybe one of the kids was called in by one of the pastors and grilled on the subject. But the word got out. The principal of the school, a lady, called the kids in just before graduation and expelled them all, kicked them right out of the school. The parents filed a lawsuit. A legal expert who was interviewed, Arthur Miller, on the program said, well, looking at it from the school's point of view, they are not only a private school, but they are a spiritual organization, a church, and they would probably argue that the quality of the student's life, the character of the student, on or off campus, is in the province of the church. And therefore, if the student does something which is, is kind of a, a bad from the standpoint of doctrine and might, might tend to injure the reputation of the school or the church that they represent, that the, the school might argue that they had the right to completely expel these students. The parents, on the other hand, argued that they have never given into the hands of the school total control over their children, reaching right into their own bedroom, into their own living room, their own kitchen, their own bathroom. They said, why, the school's jurisdiction is over the moment my kid leaves the school's school grounds. And as a matter of fact, some parents might tend to argue, I have never given into the school such total control over my, my kid that they can do anything they want to him or to her without even asking me about it, whether school's in session on the school grounds or not. It's going to be a very interesting case. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's going to go through a state court, and who knows, maybe a state supreme court, maybe an appellate court, maybe to the Supreme Court of the United States. And it's going to have a little bit to do with the separation of church and state, and perhaps be one more chapter in the ongoing battle that is underway and has been for a long time on that issue in the United States. I tend to agree with the parents, but then that's an opinion of mine, and that's not necessarily the way the courts are going to see it. 
In God's church down through the ages, there have admittedly been periods of time in history when some things which have been done commonly by the body of believers have been viewed as perfectly all right, when a hundred years or so later, that same practice may have been viewed by the church as a sin. One of the most outstanding cases I can cite, you can turn, I won't turn to that, over in Colossians, the third chapter, let me see if I wrote down the verse, and if I find it, if I don't, I won't worry about it, I can turn to it, let me just find it for you, because it's one that is important, I think, Colossians, the third chapter, verse 22, servants, the word servants actually in the original Greek is slaves, the original Greek does not mean like maid or butler or chauffeur or cook, it means slaves. And that is exactly what Paul wrote, because at that time slavery was in vogue and people owned slaves. Slaves, he says, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, not only when they're looking, but, you know, from the heart, genuinely, as men pleasers, doing it, you know, just ostensibly we're out in the open where they can see it, but in singleness of heart, fearing God, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Today, if you owned another human being, you went on some illegal market somewhere into maybe Jamaica, some other country, and somebody sold you a child, and you, you had that child come, and a young teenager, and you made a slave out of that person, would that be a sin? What do you think? Would it be a sin? George Washington, the father of our country, was a slave owner. Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. Were they sinners because they were slave owners? No. Now, what are we saying? We seem to be saying that changing mores and values of society sometimes do not flagrantly violate the great cardinal points of God's Ten Commandments. And that within the great cardinal points of God's Ten Commandments, there's a great deal of room for any number of societal idiosyncrasies or mores or laws, what is uh, conceived of as being appropriate and what is not appropriate. And as a matter of fact, the Bible makes provision for that, doesn't it? It's kind of like saying, although it doesn't really say this, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Paul taught that in a sense, although with certain parameters and guidelines. He said he would not eat meat in front of a person who believed the meat was contaminated by an idol if it was slain in front of an idol. He said, while the world stands, lest it cause my brother to offend. But he said, all things are lawful for me, meaning all lawful things, but not all things are expedient. It's not always expedient. The answer then is, if you were to buy a person and make a slave out of that person, you would be a sinner today. It would be a sin, because slavery is absolutely outlawed in our society as well it should be. But was it a sin during the day when Christ and the apostles walked the earth? No, it was not. It's interesting then, in a cosmopolitan church among the Hellenists, the Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, all of those people represented, you read of in the first chapter of the book of Acts, and the second chapter, I should say, who were present at the day of Pentecost from Bithynia, from Cappadocia, 
from Dacia and beyond, from the isles and the coastlands of the sea, from the entire known Mediterranean world. There were Jews, proselytes, and others there of every conceivable dialect. I'll tell you something else. They all dressed differently. They wore different headgear, different forms of facial decoration, different forms of facial hair, different garb and footgear. They spoke different languages. They were different. They didn't all look alike. It's interesting that the New Testament is utterly devoid in the writings of the apostle who was sent to this disparate group, the Gentiles, in their many races, cultures, languages, and lifestyles. And yet there is not one whisper of the Apostle Paul insisting on all of those Gentiles living like, becoming like, the Jews. The one issue that is the easiest to prove is the simple ritual of circumcision. Well, the Apostle Paul says, circumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. That's the important thing. The one thing the Jews wanted to do was to mold everyone into the pattern of the Jewish race by insisting that Gentiles be circumcised. What I'm coming to is quite fascinating because of what has been happening in the church, in the parent body here recently. You know, Jesus Christ said that you would be betrayed. You would be betrayed of your parents. Children would betray their parents. Parents would betray the child. A husband would betray a wife and vice versa. Recently, there have been cases where people have been put out of the parent body, excommunicated publicly, because of something that was brought to them by a child or by a family member. I was told recently of a family who had been visited by their minister and his wife. Allegedly, this minister and his wife made a habit or a practice out of doing what I'm about to relate. While the husband was keeping them occupied, I guess she ostensibly asking, where is the bathroom? And you might have to use the facilities while you're there. The husband is talking earnestly with his Bible on his knee to these people having a Bible study, and the wife is in there like the looky-loos that you read of in television, who is supposed to be looking to buy your house, but is going through your closets and looking behind the shoe rack in the closet, maybe going through the drawers in the bathroom. Sure enough, the wife finds what she's looking for. She goes through the drawers in the bathroom. There's some makeup. Did she have the right to discover it? Interesting exercise here. Now, let's assume that this family were just a little smarter than they really were. And they'd sort of suspected what this ministerial righteous couple were going to do. And so instead of just cleaning up the cabinet and closing the drawer, she'd done just like the proverbial days of unleavened bread search, and she'd been in there with a vacuum cleaner, making sure every bit of base and powder and everything else was up out of the carpet, taking all of her makeup, the last little bit, even clear, invisible nail polish, and put it in the attic in a little tin-locking box. Now... There's no difference at all so far as the woman is concerned. She's the same lady, right? But this time we'll assume the minister and his wife don't find out about it. They don't know about it. doesn't hurt their conscience at all. What's the difference? None. Same people. They're going to be sitting in church for years. And what the minister doesn't know isn't going to hurt him. Are they sinning in God's sight? Absolutely not. They're not sinning in their own conscience. Absolutely not. 
I know that most of the Roman ladies, most of the Hellenists and the Greeks with whom the Apostle Paul came into contact, wore makeup. And the New Testament is utterly devoid of any condemnation of the habitual dress and the wear of Hellenistic Greeks and Romans, the people of the Peloponnesus and the islands of the Mediterranean and the Cretans and the others during the days of the Apostle Paul. I also know that the top scholars appointed by my father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, that were available in the Church of God at that time of the entirety, there were a rather extensive Ambassador College Theological Library at their fingertips, plus the great big Los Angeles Public Library, all of the commentaries, all the originals, including photostatic copies of a couple of the original codices, investigated root and branch every last little minuscule innuendo implicit in every scripture having to do with makeup in the Bible. The statement about the lips of scarlet in the Song of Solomon. Jezebel, who tired her head, painted her eyes, and looked out the window and said, Is it peace, Zemri, who slew his master? Every scripture in the Bible, the daughters of Zion are haughty, and they walk with, uh, with mincing steps and wanton, quote-unquote, meaning eyes set off with paint. Ah, every bit of it, technically, thoroughly investigated, exegetically explained, expounded, and a booklet was completely retired. A brand new e edict was made in the church. We were wrong. Here's the explanation. Here it is in the ministerial bulletin. Here it is in the church newspaper. It's available in study papers. Yay thick. My father approved it, and it was published before the entire worldwide Church of God. It didn't change some ladies' minds, as well it might not have. They were of a different opinion. Wonderful. No problem. The edict didn't say you got to wear it. It just said, brethren, the main problem is we shouldn't judge one another. Somebody who doesn't want to, that's lovely. you got to love them because they don't want to. Somebody who wants to, no problem. Love them in spite of that fact. Don't judge one another. And so the edict went out thoroughly researched. Of course, we published that and have sent out copies. This one we didn't typeset. We didn't put this back to the typesetter and reprint it. We took the original with my dad's signature right there on the ministerial bulletin saying he had authorized the change, and we merely photographed it, and we printed a photostat or a photograph of exactly what was done clear back in about 1974-75 when it was sent out. But today there are people being put out of the church as long as it is discovered. Their sisters are remaining in the church undiscovered. Now you've got to admit that makeup is easier to discover than masturbation. Did I shock you with that word? I'm sorry. But it really is, isn't it? And I can read to you, I won't do it because it's one of the most embarrassing sagas of my father's writing career, a statement in the book on God Speaks Out about the new morality on the subject of masturbation. Unfortunately, that is something which is basically never discovered in the church. It's just an interesting point I'm bringing out. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it in relationship to the Church of God International and in your personal relationship to Almighty God. About every hundred years or so, zealots arise in the midst of God's church who would reorganize, revolutionize, and purify the church. The church, allegedly, has drifted into error, 
or it has become lukewarm, or as it was stated in one so-called era of the church, it had become completely spiritually dead. Many heed the call. Young, eager tyros, neophytes, visionaries join the flock, about age 18, 19, barely dry behind the ears, and they energetically seek to bring about revival within the church, total rededication, return to the true values, getting back to the doctrines once delivered, total spiritual reform. And what is the struggle? To create a utopian environment, to purify the church, to keep the church free from sin, to get it ready to meet the Lord, to get it ready for the wedding supper, to qualify, those are the words always used, to be taken to a place of safety, and to qualify to get into the kingdom of God. It is difficult to imagine the incredible evils that can arise from such a young, well-intentioned group of zealots desperately striving to keep the church free from sin. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 4 that sin is the transgression of the law. But I've already proved to you that within the broad parameters of God's law, even such an issue as slavery is not covered. Neither was circumcision. Isn't even mentioned in the Ten Commandments. Neither are toupees, neckties, or eyeglasses. Because if you're going to outlaw toupees, you've got to outlaw glass eyes. Right? Because after all, what you're doing, you're trying to improve on your appearance. You're trying to deceive people, correct? Everybody ought to know you've got only an empty socket where an eyeball belongs, and it is a dirty, deceptive practice, probably trying to lead somebody on to get in bed with them, you know what I mean. Entice someone with your glass eye, right? I mean, some minister might decide that's exactly what you're trying to do. It's blue and it ought to be brown or whatever. Which reminds me, you probably heard that, but I want to repeat it. It's a lovely story about the guy who went into the business of getting extra lightweight glass eyes, but he was making these out of wood. Very fine, imported, white teak. And he painted them up, and they were so lightweight that they, they didn't track slowly, like most people glance over here, and the glass eyes sort of follow slowly, you know, and it looks weird. Uh, for a time, he's, he's sort of uh, cross-eyed or whatever. And he was trying to talk his brother-in-law, who had had an eye put out as a child in an accident, very embarrassed about his black eye patch. He was trying to entice him into going out in public and trying out one of these new, brand new, beautiful, lightweight wooden eyes. Well, he was very embarrassed. He was socially a disaster because of his handicap. But he said, all right, reluctantly, he would do it. Tried to get him out in public, and finally he decided to go to a social they were throwing for the church. And he's sitting over against the wall. And kind of watching to see if anybody notices him. And nobody had paid much attention. Well, he looks across the room, and there was only one girl who wasn't really being danced with very often. She was kind of tall, awkward, and gangly, and had a nose that looked like she could uh, use it, you know, for uh, maybe peeking through uh, picket fences or whatever. She looked like a hawk's nose, what it looked like. Very large, protuberant nose. She sort of followed her nose into the room. And... Uh, he, decided, he got up his courage. He realized she's kind of a wallflower. So he walked over there, and he finally, timidly, with his eye in place, said, I don't suppose you'd want to dance with me, would you? And she says, oh, wouldn't I? Wouldn't I? He says, well, big nose, big nose. So you've heard that, I know. Thank you for laughing. That was a polite laugh. Appreciate that.
But, you know, I think there are probably people who would outlaw wooden eyes or, for that matter, glass eyes because people decide to look down and, and wonder whether everybody is in uniform today. Now, let me just characterize the church, first of all, by a couple of statements the Apostle Paul made. First, in Romans, the seventh chapter. There are a couple of them that I want to refer to. And I'm going to epitomize the ministry by one of the greatest ministers of all time. Maybe you've seen the fabled application for credentials this man sent in, who also said, by the way, I've been in jail several times, I've been beaten and all of that, and he, got, he, he didn't get the job. And it's interesting because it was by the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans, the seventh chapter, and in verse 19, For the good that I would do, I do not, but the evil which I would, that I do. I'm sorry, would not, that I do. So he wants to do good, but he finds himself doing evil. Now, if I do that which I would not, or wish I didn't, it's no more I that do it, but sin that lives in me. I find it's a law, it's a principle. When I want to do good, there's evil. Evil is pulling and tugging at me, my appetites, etc. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I think we all do, basically. We want to have God love us and love Him, and we want to be good people. But we have these appetites. we got these customs and habits, and we have these pitfalls we fall into. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, basically, that is implied, I thank God it will be done, I will be delivered, but through Christ. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Over in 1 Corinthians, and let me see which one I want. He said, he preaches the gospel of necessity, in verse 18, to make it free and without charge, that he abuses not his power in the gospel. He said to the Jews, he became like a Jew, verse 20, that he might gain them that are under the law. To the Gentiles, without law, verse 21, as without law, not being without law to God, but under the law to Christ, so I could gain them that are without the law. Honor to whom honor, custom to whom custom, when in Rome, and the rest of it. To the weak he became as weak. So he said in verse 25, Every man that strives for the mastery, and he characterized the Christian life as a race, runs all, but only one's going to win. So run that you may win or obtain. And every man that strives is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. He might have been referring to the Olympics, which have been going for years and certainly antedated Jesus Christ. But we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air. But I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Here's a man who says that his lifestyle is such that he has no necessity to marry. Think about the Apostle Paul. He reveals to us in the last chapter of Galatians that he has defective eyes. He may have had cataracts. We don't know. Removal of cataracts by surgery was not known then. It was something that made him so ugly that people actually disparaged his physical appearance and said his bodily presence is weak, but his letters are strong. And he said, I bear them record, bear him record, talking about one of his aides, that he would have plucked out and given me his own eyes. Interesting. 
And he said at the conclusion of Galatians, you see how with large letters I have written this in my own hand because its authenticity had to be genuine and demonstrated those people who wouldn't have accepted it where all of his letters were dictated and all of the other young men who served him wrote the letters of the Apostle Paul, but he concluded this one with his own scrawl. I think there's evidence to prove that the Apostle Paul had an affliction of the eyes that was ugly, that turned people off. Here we have a man who is celibate, claims he has no necessity, and wants to live alone without a wife. Some people might say that's unbalanced, an old bachelor. He's got ugly eyes, maybe not that good of a voice. He says, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to say it, so don't deny it, it's true, Oh, wretched man that I am! He also says, I've got to watch it because after preaching to you and telling you how to live, I might miss the boat. Are you willing to give into the hands of this man, as great as we may feel as the Apostle Paul, total control in all facets of your life, public and private, your marriage, your business, and your children, into the hands of the Apostle Paul if he were alive today? Are you? You shouldn't be. How in the world can you claim you are infallible? You're not infallible, are you? But you're saying you are if you say, I'm going to give my total being into the hands of this man because you are the last word and you are saying, I can't make a mistake because I'm going to decide he is infallible and he can't make a mistake. And therefore, if I just join myself to him, if I give myself to him, and is that not really what it is? Becoming a sacrifice, not to Christ, but sacrificing yourself as a slave to a man and saying, I am going to be, as an imperfect human being, giving myself into the hands of an imperfect man in an imperfect church in the midst of a very grossly imperfect society in order to achieve perfection. It's interesting that those young neophytes, tyros, and zealots who come along as visionaries to fantasize about some great utopian church in which there is no sin. Write a new Talmud about every hundred years or so and try to impose that Talmud upon God's people. If I read correctly the examples of Christ, Matthew 25 and verse 15, the talents, and over in Luke 19, 13, the parable of the pounds, the word several is interesting here. If you look at it in the original Greek, and of course even an English dictionary would help because it means exactly what it says, separate or apart. In verse 14, chapter 25 of the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and deli delivered unto them his goods. Unto the one he gave five talents. A talent was a weight of metal. A weight of metal, meaning, in another example, maybe it's the same one, I think, repeated at a different time and written by a different scribe, pounds, which was translated in the King James into the British money of the time. So let's say dollars, a certain number of dollars. And he gave him five dollars, maybe you can say five hundred dollars or five thousand dollars, more meaningful. On the one he gave five, to another two, to another one. To each man, to every man, according to his several ability. Now this is acknowledging that each one of those people were different. 
The word several means unique, it means apart, it means different, it means separate, disparate. It does not mean identical. It's not according to his identical ability, but his particular individual, separate, private, personal ability. And straightway took his journey. And then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. How often did the Lord get him on the telephone? How often does it say he was peering through his roof into his bathroom? How often in this analogy of getting into the kingdom of God, Christ is the landowner, he is the one who apportions out the talents or the pounds, how often did he check up to see how well his servant was doing? Seems like he gives him a responsibility, gives him some money, and he goes away. After a certain period of time, he comes back and he would like an accounting. He, being unaware of what kind of an answer he's going to get, what kind of a response, what kind of an increase, or what kind of a failure, seems to be unaware in this analogy that Christ uses of Christ and the kingdom. So, it said the one that had five gained five. Verse 17, the one that had two gained two. Each one of them actually increased exactly the same percentage points, 100%, but different because of different ability. The one that had the one went and hid it in the earth, mattress money, the coffee can under the chicken coop. And after a long time, the Lord of the servants came and reckoned with them. And he that received the five talents came and brought other five, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Behold, I've gained beside them five talents more. And the Lord said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The great words that we have held up before God's people as being the best words we could ever hear. And in what analogy, in what parable, the parable of the talents given to each individual according to his several, separate, apart, unique abilities. Thou good and faithful servant, you have been faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. He also to receive two said, Lord, you gave me two, and I have gained two beside them. And the Lord said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'm going to give you a different reward. Less. Less by 60%, but still, according to your natural ability, because you increased by 100%, I'm giving you 60% less than the other guy, but I'm giving exactly the same reward according to your own ability. So you get two. He that had the one said, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you didn't straw, and I was afraid, so I went and dug a hole and hid the talent in the earth, and here it is. Here's what you gave me. And the Lord answered and said, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I sowed not, and gathered where I had not strawed. You ought, therefore, to have put my money to the exchangers. Then, at my coming, I should have received my own with usury. Take, therefore, the talent from him, and give it to him which has ten talents. For unto every one that has shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that has not shall be taken away, even that which he has. And you cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The other example you can read, and I won't turn to it, is in Luke 19:13, the parable of the pounds. This illustrates individuality. And if there's any other scripture in the Bible, there are several more perhaps that are somewhat illustrative, but a scripture which shows that God would, that free men should live in a system of free enterprise, of personal individual ingenuity, rather than a Soviet socialist republic where all people have things common, where the state owns everything, where it is socialized medicine, socialized everything, 
and you all just sort of blend into a homogeneous mass. It is these scriptures, including the one about the laborer or the, or the owner of the vineyard that hired a laborer at the beginning of the day for a penny and at the end of the day for a penny, which totally destroys the, the concept of unionism and says that the laborer and the landowner had the right to enter into a private contract, a completely private, separate, different agreement, which had totally to do with, with different parameters, different number of hours of labor, different reward for a different amount of work, and it was in the purview, it was within the, the uh, discretion of the landowner to do so, so long as the individual shook hands and said, I like it, that's fine. It's an example that God says free enterprise is the right system. And I brought that up in a, ser in a sermon before. You know, this business of individuality, of being private, of being personal, and being a, a unique individual, is one of the most important to me in the entirety of the Bible. Because salvation is deeply private. Prayer is private. Tithing is private. You have the right to be a private person. Now, back in the early years of the college, we laid, they laid, and I later on laid great emphasis on Ananias and Sapphira. I won't read that now, but in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, of the two that conspired to lie to the Holy Spirit. I think I've told you before of how I tried to use that on a little old lady up in Big Sandy. I won't relate it all, but she refused to answer me, and I said, oh, well, you can answer me. This is different. I'm not just anybody. I am a minister. You can answer me. No, I, I uh, made a vow. I, I, I said to my friend that I could not reveal this particular thing. So she was asking me to help her solve a problem, but she couldn't give me all the details because this one aspect of it, she had absolutely promised a dear friend of hers never to tell. Might have compromised her friend. I was the most frustrated individual. I wanted to put that woman out of the church. I was so mad. And she never broke. I tried to break her for, I bet, 45 minutes. I gave her every example of the Bible I could think of, and I mean, by the time I finished climbing my stepladder, I was clear up there, my feet barely visible below the clouds, up there on my pedestal. She was way down there squirming around on the ground. I was a minister, and she was the lay member, and how dare you not tell me she never would. And she was right, and I was wrong. The church was wrong, and she was right. She had every right to tell me, well, I'm sorry, but I promised a dear friend of mine to keep this particular aspect, this secret between us, not to reveal it. So I'm afraid I'll have to ask you to help me within those parameters, but I, I can't reveal this one aspect. I should have been wise enough, mature enough, knowledgeable enough to know, well, that's a very deeply private thing. And bless her heart, she's a trusted friend. You should have such a friend. You should have a friend who will keep your secret if you ask him to, even under the kind of grilling that I was imposing on this poor little old lady. Most people don't have that kind of friends. Over in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, it says, talking about sin, and I want to ask this very important question as you turn there. If you sin and I, the minister, don't know about it, do you get away with it? All right? I'll ask it again. You know, if, if you sin, you commit some horrible sin. I mean, figure the most horrible sin you can, and I don't find out about it, does that mean you get away with it? 
Oh, come on, everybody knows the answer. That's a stupid question, isn't it? Really a dumb question. But there are a lot of old, tried ministers grew up in their 50s and 60s in the parent church that don't know that answer. They just don't know. They would answer, well, yes. And I have to judge that by their actions, as I will now relate to you. If you were the minister, let's say, and you find out through an informant, or you happen to see someone uh, in society somewhere, and uh, they don't know that you're aware that you're watching them, like a good uh, friend of ours here that uh, had moved back to California, but they were at a hotel in Madrid. And I won't re reveal who, because I've been sued already for $551 million for telling the truth about one subject, so there's no reason to get into the lawsuit, but this couple were sitting there in a, in a bar lounge in one of the very top hotels in, in uh, Spain. And a couple of very prominent people in the church were there, and uh, one of them went up to this lady at the bar and had in an earnest conversation. It lasted a few minutes, and a couple of drinks that were bought, after a while, got up and disappeared. Well, a little later on, the lady came back and was sitting at the bar again about an hour later. This couple was still there. Well, this guy didn't know a lot of Spanish, but he went up to the bartender. He said, excuse me, he said, uh, the lady there, uh, does she work here? She, uh, she works here in the, in the hotel? Oh, no, senor, es una puta. Oh, no, she's a prostitute. Oh, really? Well, uh, fine. So he, he, he didn't want to judge, you know. He didn't want to falsely judge what he'd just seen. He saw this very important person leave the bar with the prostitute. The prostitute comes back an hour later. The guy's nowhere in sight. So he, he goes up and sits down next to her. Can I buy you a drink? See, si, senor, big smile. He buys her a drink, and in his best attempt, Spanish and English, asks her for a date. Sure, you're on. Fine. How much? $100. So he goes over to his wife. He says, honey, I don't know what you're going to do for the evening. I got myself a date. Of course, he was just kidding. But he went that far to make sure he wasn't misjudging anybody. He related the story to me, and I thought that was interesting. Now, of course, nobody in the church, in the ministry, ever found out about that. The superiors of the individual involved never heard of it. The individual that did it doesn't know to this day that the gentleman I'm referring to saw and heard what went on. And he would probably deny it if he did. Question is, if he did what you and I think he did, did he get away with it? He was never put out of the church because of it. He was never blackballed from the pulpit because of it. Nobody ever called his name and said, you're out of the church, with his own wife sitting there and maybe children around him. That never happens. Happened to other people, but it never happened to him. So he was never found out. Interesting. If I don't see you, do you get away with it? If you don't see me, do I get away with it? I have news for us, for all of us, and we know what the truth is. God sees behind the barn. That's all you need to say. He sees through the roof, and God has his angels up there taking notes. And just because you kid the minister or kid the church, you can't kid God. Now, I think it's very important to realize there is the possibility that sitting in church in any given week may be quite a collection of sinners. If that were ever to occur to me and I were to deal with that in a profound way, I'd say, now wait a minute, there's no way I can keep tabs on all these people. It may well be that on any given Sabbath I am speaking to people who sinned in some way or another during the week. 
If I'm going to try to put together an organization to prevent all of that and to keep the church free from sin, it's going to drive me absolutely crazy. I won't have time to do anything else. I'll have to put in place bugs and hidden devices and hidden mirrors and cameras. I'll have to have a spy system. I'll have to have the congregation able to report on the ministry. And I know a church where that is true and where they've been given letters that if he does something wrong, you tell me about it. Children on their parents and on each other, wouldn't I? I'd have to have a kind of a big brother society where you've got to guard your mouth, you've got to hide your makeup, you've got to be real careful about your personal lifestyle because somebody is liable to report on you. Now that says that if you can keep it concealed, fine. No problem. You are viewed in the congregation as one of the loyal, fine members of the church. Threw my glasses on the floor for emphasis. No problem whatsoever, but if it is revealed, you're probably going to get kicked out of the church. Over in Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter in verse 15. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't read the scripture. Let me turn to this in first in first Peter that I had asked you to read chapter 4 and verse 8. It says, above all things, have fervent love, charity, outgoing concern, among yourselves, for fervent love, charity, shall cover the multitude of sins. It also tells me over in James 5 and verse 20, back just a few pages, and I'll relate that one to you. James 5 and verse 20, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way be he minister or lay member, doesn't say he which kicks the sinner out of church, but he which works with, eats with, talks with, fellowships with, socializes with, perhaps argues with, pleads with the sinner, and helps in getting him converted, because Christ did that with people who were sinners, shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Not expose, not display, but hide. I've asked for many years, just because it floats by Mrs. Murphy's gutter, does Mrs. Murphy need to know about it? Now, I ask that for a purpose because in our media, they have the idea, and they even advertise it on public, a lot of people that look like they just flunked sand pile and have graduated to waiting class. They have all of the, the look of intelligence of a dropout from kindergarten and said, why does Dolly Parton and this and that and the other thing? I want to know. And then the next person, oh, I want to know. Somebody else, I want to know too, you know. The keyhole. Publication with a little key where it shows a guy at his posterior peeping through a keyhole. Another one called the peeping Tom. Or, you know, an eavesdropper was someone that crawled over the roof and hung by his ankles from the eaves of the house. So that eavesdropping means dropping over the eaves to hear what's going on in the window. I was amazed. I talked to a man up in Chicago. We went up there for one of the meetings. He said that some of his training when he was first put into the ministerial training program consisted of going along with one of the ministers who long since became one of the, quote, leading ministers of the parent church when he was crawling, shinnying up a tree outside the home of a widow in the church who was suspected of smoking. Of course, it was at night. I'm not quite certain that was the only thing the minister had in mind. But the man who was with him in the automobile going along for ministerial training took a training, a lesson in how to get up to the first fork of the tree. You know, how to take off your shoes and start putting those old horny feet on the branches and getting up there and watching you don't get shivers or, or splinters in your, uh, your foot. 
I thought it was funny. also thought it was bizarre, grotesque, and probably illegal that a minister is a peeping Tom and is spying by looking into widows' windows about undressing time. I don't know what was going on, whether she smoked or not. What the guy ever saw, I'm not sure either, except didn't come down from the tree about four hours, but I guess they got him down. I'm just kidding. You realize that. But I'm not kidding about him shinning up the tree. I just don't know how long he stayed up there. Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, in verse 15, See, I have set before you this day life and good, and death and evil, in that I command thee this day to love the Eternal your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, because they are good laws and good for us. And the Eternal your God will bless you in the land, whether you go to possess it. But if your heart turns away so that you will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you will surely die, and that you will not prolong your days upon the land, whether you pass over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, not to record, but as the record of my creation is what he's saying, that I have set before you from the time you were born, Life and death. Blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose, and he strongly suggests which way you ought to choose. Choose life. But he leaves the choice up to you. Choose life that both you and your seed may live, that you may love the eternal your God, that you may obey his voice, cleave to him. He is your life. Choose life. He's saying you have a choice to make. You must make those choices. What's the most important choice you ever made? You might, uh, you might put down any number of things. You thought, what is the single most important decision I ever made in my life? It might mean baptism. To say, I repent of my sins and I want God to forgive me and I want to be a member of God's church. It might mean to have a child. It might mean to go to child, uh, college or to build a new home or to get married or to uh, whatever, to, to have an operation. I mean, I don't know what it would be. But every one of the choices I'm talking about would probably be a really serious matter having to do with your physical life, a lifelong decision. When I talk about marriage or an operation or going to college or building a home or moving from one state five states away where you don't know anybody or something like that. I'm talking about a really serious choice. I want to tell you about a serious choice. I was in the Hall of Administration one day. My father was speaking and someone whom I shall call Dick Mache for anonymity had brought him a couple of terrible problems that existed among some of the students during that day and got my father all upset and angry. And so he decided, since in the West Point of the work, the only way you could succeed was getting into the ministry. And the only way you were going to get into the ministry was to do it exactly the way the church told you to. And so there was a rule in vogue that said, and I quote, it was in the student handbook, quote, seniors may not date pursuant to marriage until the second semester of their senior year, end quote. So precisely at the semester break, for years, as generations of young students came through the college, half of the senior class announced their wedding date and got in a scramble to decide who was going to marry them, and so on. And I always, it was a mystery how they did that, never having dated. 
So the the real, uh, you know, the SS, I mean the secret police of the college, finally after about ten years, that dawned on someone. You know, they were pretty sharp people. And they figured out, they figured out something here is wrong, you know. I mean, we're going to have to stop all this. And they began investigating. Well, my dad decided that there had been too many people. Some of these people were figuring the angles, and they went to Dr. Hay. And he was pretty lenient. And they'd had one particularly obnoxious situation my dad got wind of, where a one of these people who uh, used to shinny up trees would have said, Mama, them there Mexicans was going to marry a white. That's why they told one of the guys met one of the... Uh, he was a Syrian that owned, no, Lebanese, that owned the local restaurant to whom a lot of the people were going for sandwiches at lunch. And when this guy decided, liking ambassador people, he wanted to come to the college gymnasium and go to church, one of these superdeacons met him at the door and says, I'm sorry, the Mexicans all go down to the Los Angeles church. Of course, the guy never came back, never darkened the door again. I, I confess, I failed. I failed that church utterly. I fought that kind of thing like an absolute tiger for years. I fought it like a banshee. I hated it. I tried to stamp it out of that church, and I utterly failed. It is alive and well, green, grotesque, with a hundred eyes, filling all of a landscape, just growing over everything like a cancer, and I was utterly unable to stop it. But anyway, here is an example. I listen to these words because people have been going to people and getting permission to, to marry and they shouldn't have. And apparently, a person who lived in San Antonio, both of the parents loved it, and they went to both David Andy and Herman Hay and Charles Dorothy, and all of these ministers said, that's fine as long as the parents loved it, and they're involved, so on. Yeah, a little olive tone to the skin. Maybe the parents had come from Mexico, but second generation living in Texas and San Antonio, we might call them Chicano, you know, Americano, and so on. But culturally... I'm not even sure the person with the Spanish name spoke Spanish. I, I, I'm unaware that he did. But anyway, the parents were involved. They said, fine. Now, of course, the fact that Ramona was 50% Arapaho or Mestizo or Mescalo or Apache, whatever it is down there, didn't seem to matter when it came my dad's turn to get married. But it was a huge problem. And they sat in the boardroom, and I finally told the entire assembled board, I said, you gentlemen know what you're doing when they were actually... They caused this couple who had already been engaged, who had their dates set, the announcements out, and were going to be married in Ambassador Hall, to creep off at night and to go over to Las Vegas in an automobile and to get married by a justice of the peace. That's what they did. Because the ministry assembled, brought it to my dad, and they all got up on their stentorian righteous stepladder and decreed that this is not a suitable marriage. But it was all right for David Andean, who is Syrian, second generation in this country, to marry Molly my sister-in-law, and it was all right for my dad to marry a half-Indian, and it was all right for a lot of other marriages that were supposed to be, quote, interracial. But this one was not all right. Well, based upon that, my dad put in place only four marriage counselors, and I was supposed to be one of them. Well, I refused to be, and I never counseled for marriage from that time on, because I decided other people should make those decisions. What I'm about to relate took place. One of the finest young men in college, basketball player, handsome, likable, socially well-adapted, adjusted, balanced, good build, came to my office one day. He is in love with one of the finest girls in college. She'd come all the way up through the church, little baby girl, through imperial schools. Now she's all the way senior, going to graduate from Ambassador College. 
Her, husband, her uh, father, whom I shall call Franco uh, Bertelli, for anonymity, worked in the radio studio, and for years and years I had looked at his face while I'm doing thousands of radio programs. I knew him pretty well, not socially. We'd not gone fishing or to dinner together very often, but I sure knew him pretty well. And old Franco was a pretty nice guy. Here is his prospective son-in-law, who has been to Dick Maché. Now, he is desperately in love, but Maché, who was a tertiary official, he finally made it all the way to the student, uh, uh, what was it, dean of students office at one time in the college, learned of this love, these young people who wanted to get married, and promptly told a young man he wasn't suitable for her, that uh, he had a lower IQ. And she did. Now, if you think IQ means very much, then you don't know very much about IQ. It means nothing whatsoever about social adjustment, about mental balance, about your capacity. It is a very narrow test that has to do with the potential for learning certain technical things. It may have been true that if you put her into computer programming and data processing and him into the same field, she might have been better than he was. But now making decisions about homes and family and, and every other aspect of life, there's no way of sitting down and telling me on some test that she's smarter than he is straight across the board and everything. But Maché uh, says to them, with all of the power of the ministry, well, all the authority of the church and the authority of the dean of students' office lay it on the shelf. Now, wait a minute. When was the last time you felt you were desperately in love? Try, try to think. You know, a lot of you still feel you are right now. That's great. But think about how utterly, totally involved you are. It's like the first time you dove off the high board. I mean, you're all the way in, you know. You are completely in. The waters are closed over your head, and you are drowning in that sensation known as love. Are you not? the most important human being on the face of the earth. You love his or her earlobes. There isn't anything they say or do that isn't like so much honey and graham crackers. You're absolutely, desperately in love, folks. I'm talking about two young people that were in love and they wanted to be married. They were utterly devastated. I mean shaken to the, to the soul. Destroyed. You can't believe the conflict. On the one hand is the kingdom of God, and suddenly the one greatest impediment to success, the ministry, my lease car, and my little congregation out there to preach to, and the kingdom of God and Petra on the way for three and a half years to picnic in, is the woman I love. Now suddenly the woman I love is not the answer to all my dreams. She is the great specter that arose out of the green swamp. And if I marry this woman, I'm dead. Now, you know, try to put yourself in a place because what I'm really, really happened. The young guy came in there with his heart in his mouth, and I mean he was just absolutely, he was gray, he was shaking, he was just destroyed. So was she. She was just miserable. And they're asking about this. What are they supposed to do? He relates to me that they had dated many, many times, and they'd been on all kinds of things, field trips, student outings, socials, you know, on campus mostly, but also off-campus dates, and movies and dinner and beach parties and snow line party, and they'd been dating, and they'd come to really know each other and love each other and so on. And, and I, I just thought, well, what about, you know, Franco Bertelli? And I said, well, uh, I'll call him... Uh, 
Benny because uh, for anonymity. I said, Benny, uh, you want to marry the girl? Uh, have you have you ever talked to old Franco in there? He said, No, never occurred to him. I said, What? Well, you know, of course, that her father is right in there through two doors on the fourth floor, runs a radio studio, been working with me for years. You mean to say you've never sat down and discussed marrying his daughter with the father? Well, no, never occurred to him. He went to the new students. Oh, I see. What I'm relating, you know, some of you people know this and some of you don't, is a state within a state, a closed fraternity, a locked-in society, which became like a little government, a little utopian, would-be, perfectionist society, within a society where total control over everything you did was what happened to you. Where marriages were arranged by the score and marriages were disarranged by the score. For years, my father said, this is not an experiment in utopia. It's no longer a use, an experiment. It has succeeded. And one of the biggest success stories, we have never had a divorce from the beginning of the college till now. And yet, after some of those couples have been married six, eight, ten years, I mean, divorce broke out like an all-encompassing rash. It was exploding like popcorn. People were getting divorced so fast you couldn't believe it. Marriages were falling apart left and right in the ministry, and I might say, all the way to the top. All right? Should those marriages have been arranged, I'm telling you there are couples who were married and been married 15 or 20 years who will come to you today and tell you, I never really loved that person. I was herded into it. I was told, she's good for you, or he's the one you ought to marry. And the feeling that I always wanted out of life was never there in my heart. You think that's important to a human being? What do you think the bill is? What do you think God's got on his record for the Mashes and the other people of the world when all the marriage arrangers are called before God to give an account for the wretchedness they build in a person's lives, for all the suicides and the divorces and the poor, distraught, wretched young girls and boys who had to grow up without a family. That's what the bill is going to be when some of those marriage arrangers get their day in court. And I want to be there, I'll guarantee you, to at least listen to what the verdict is, because I hated it. And I always said, get the parents involved. Go to the parent, for pity's sake. So I said to Dan, I said, hey, you walk in there, introduce yourself to old Franco, and you go and sit in a fishing boat with him, and you go down and share about three beers with him, and you get to know him, and you let your hair down, you let him find out exactly what kind of a young man you are, you find out what kind of a family she came from, and then you take your intended, and you go visit your parents, and you get them involved where they get to know her and get all those parents involved and see what they think about it. And then you make your decision based upon all what all of you learn, and you forget Mache. And don't sit here and quiver like a jelly-like blob, which he was doing, for going over his head. He was scared to death. I've gone over the, student, the, the dean of students' head. I said, I'll take care of him. And boy, I wish I'd have had the chance to take care of him a little better than I did, but I had the chance to take care of him a time or two. But 
They got married, and I hope and pray they're living happily ever after. I think they are. Last time I heard, they had a fine family and a lot of children, and she wasn't aware that uh, he was in any way her inferior. I figured the parents ought to get involved. Now, I want to tell you something about your privacy and whether you have a right to privacy, to making a private choice, a private decision, and whether or not the church needs to even know about it. Let's turn to that famous example in Acts, the fifth chapter, and see what some of these great, exalted religious teachers seem to miss for all of these decades. So simple and so plain, and right there in the Bible, and a very great principle. A principle of life, a principle of the Christian life. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, she was named after a sapphire apparently, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now, you know, we used that example for literally decades. I say we because I was culpable too. At that time, caught up in this euphoric, idealistic desire to build a utopian-like church that was completely free from sin and have all of these wonderful values in place and all these happy young people looking like they'd march straight out of West Point with a beautiful young girl at their side, the super race, whatever we're trying to build over there. I mean, I used to use that, Ananias and Sapphira, on people. Now, you look me in the eye, young lady, young man, and you tell me the truth. I hope to write a book. I mean, literally, I'd like to write a book big enough to be a thick paperback on the subject I'm relating to you about the invasion of privacy. I think it deserves to be written. One portion of it I want to put in there is in Hathaly's Church Councils that investigates the gradual development over the years of the Catholic confessional and why it's got the little slats so the priest can't reach through it. Now, you know, I've heard of dozens of cases, but it is said, almost axiomatic, that all patients tend to fall in love with their psychologists. That there are many girls or women, you know, that go to a shrink, and they lie on the proverbial leather couch. Now, what happened last week? Well, Henry doesn't understand me, and on and on. And it's axiomatic that they fall in love with their analyst. You've heard that. It's, 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 it's the stuff of... Uh, you know, soapbox operas, I guess, although never watch them, or movies, or novels, or what have you. Many women fall in love with their doctors. Women fall in love with their ministers. Let me tell you why. Many people will not reveal out of their deepest, innermost heart things that are painfully private to them, that bother them, hang up, psychoses, uh, fantasies, uh, guilts even to their own spouse, their own mate. Children are not able, oftentimes by barriers unintentionally set up by their own parents, to discuss things with mom and dad that they will with their closest friend. I was that way. You were that way. Mankind is that way. Don't ask me why, but we are. I would tell my closest buddy, my closest friend, of things I would never talk about to my father or my mother. I would tell my mom things I would never discuss with my dad. I would discuss almost nothing with my dad because I knew what the reaction was going to be. But then we're different. We're all different in that way. Unfortunately, 
when you reveal that much to somebody, it's difficult to be completely emotionally uninvolved. Don't you agree? I mean, you're letting an innermost something out of yourself that is locked in there that is so secret that only you and God know. Now you're saying it to another human being. And sometimes it's very difficult to do that without becoming emotionally involved. That deserves to be touched upon because many people have exploited that. This same gentleman, whom I shall call Mache, took a group of people who basically felt that they were failing and not getting along in the junior class and had his famous confessional one day where he said, we need to be open with one another. You can get a lot of evil done in a church by encouraging people to be open, to open up. You can get people to let down the last barrier and open up to a demon if you're not careful, which actually happened to a woman sitting in the Ambassador College gymnasium in the midst of a session where people were talking about healing and one gentleman stood up there and said that he looked into his own sister-in-law's eyes who had cancer in her eyes and said, I could actually look into the depth of her eyes and I could feel that cancer leaving her eyes. A year, year or so later, she died of cancer of the eyes. But in the meantime, during that very session, a young woman went absolutely crazy and had to be helped out of there and taken away and ended up in a mental institution. I found out about that famous Nouveau brand new day of Pentecost a day too late. Well, I got back to the college one time and Mache had something going with the senior class. Group of failures and washouts, they weren't going to make it. But he had them all stand up and reveal to each other all their secrets. So in one nice session, they all stood up and got to confess them. One of them said, George, I hated you the first time I saw you. I thought you were a big dumb boob from Arkansas. Couldn't stand to look at you. Thought you were a dumb blah, blah, blah. One of the worst things you could ever do to somebody is to do that. One of the worst things that you can ever do is to take long dead sins, compulsions, evil thoughts, concepts, flaws, failures, whatever of yours, like what floats back by Mrs. Murphy's house in the gutter. Mrs. Murphy's in a rocking chair looking at TV. She doesn't need to know what's going by in the gutter, but because it's on her property, you go grab it and bag it up in a plastic bag. Say, look, Mrs. Murphy, the garbage just went by, and I think there might be something here redeemable that we ought to maybe share between the two of us. That's like the media. They think if it happens, it's news, and you ought to know about it. You're supposed to have this right to know everything that goes on. Nonsense. So these guys got to confessing. I imagine the scars will never be healed in some of their minds and lives. And I found they were going to have this big euphoric kind of revival, and I had to stop it. Now notice what they missed. We used this on people. We really did. Horrible. I repent of ever having used it to try to tell people, you've got to tell me all. You've got to tell me everything. You can't hold back anything. You've got to tell me the truth. Or else, guess what might happen? You might drop dead. I tell you, that's, that's heavy stuff. But look what it says here. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? What a concept. While it remained, before they decided to sell it, it was theirs. I'm telling you, it was theirs, private to keep. They could go dig it up, set fire to it, plant fruit trees in it, or I don't care, give it away, set up stones or throw down stones. You sit on a little piece of land that is yours, that is yours. That's your private land. The church didn't have any claim over that land. 
Peter didn't have any claim over that land. He didn't even need to know that Ananias and Sapphira owned the property. It was theirs. While it was yours, wasn't it your own? And even after they decided to sell it, what could they have done? Given any portion of it they wanted. The same portion they gave, a quarter of it or a half. They could have said, we sold some property, and they didn't even need to say how much they were given, and we want to give you this. End of story. No problem. Or, we sold some property, we want to give you 25% of it. Thank you, Ananias, that's nice. But we sold some property, and we want to give it all. Because ego and vanity made them want to appear to be righteous, but at the same time, keep back some. What was wrong? What was the sin? Conspiracy. Spiritual vanity. Kind of spiritual one-upmanship. That was the sin. Lying to the Holy Spirit. Conspiring to lie and lying was the sin. Not having property, not selling the property, and not even giving a certain amount of money as a donation to the church. It was the lie. But what a lesson if you look behind it. This should never be used to try to terrorize people into confessing the deepest innermost secrets of their heart, reaching right straight into the fabric of their private lives, arranging marriages and disarranging them. No. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived to this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto God. And of course, they both fell down dead. What did Jesus Christ say about your prayer life? In closing here, what did he say about your prayer life? He said, when you pray or when you fast, do not fast or do not pray to appear unto men as if you're fasting and pray. When you fast, don't appear of a long face and sad and all that, but anoint your head, meaning rub in the oil or the hairspray or whatever, and wash your face, dress normally, and go out with a big smile on your face, so that you appear not unto men. Does that include your minister? Is a minister supposed to know whether you fast or not? No. But does God know? Of course. You want to play games with God? Fine, no problem, have a ball, you know, strike one, uh, whatever it is. Just play games all day long with God, but the minister doesn't have a right to know that you're playing games with God. It's none of his business. It's your business between you and God. You know it, and God knows it, doesn't he? You know if you've been praying, and God knows it. That much, absolutely true. That's the most flawless statement I could ever make. You know it, and God knows it. I don't. And I don't have the right. It's not my right. I'm not privileged. That's private. You ever heard of sacerdotal privilege? Privilege between doctors and patients? Privilege? There's a guy in jail who went to jail the other day as a reporter who declined to reveal his sources. And they're trying to test these cases in court. Some of them have actually gotten stories out of people who committed a crime and told them a whole story. And then somebody comes in and says, tell me who that is. I'm going to put him in jail. I'm sorry, I won't do it. So they put the reporter in jail. The reporter's correct. That Fifth Amendment is in place for a very important purpose. There should be no power or no authority which is able to force you to incriminate yourself. I'll tell you, that Fifth Amendment, you'd better thank those who put it through Congress and amended the Constitution of the United States of America, because that is there to guard your freedom. It's there to guard your privacy. You, when you pray, your Savior says, go into a private place 
and pray to your Father in heaven who is where? In secret. And your Father who hears you in secret will reward you openly. And that's the lesson. Love covers. God forgives and forgets. Men almost never forgive. And if they do, they never forget. You have a right to your privacy. The church has no right to invade it or to take it away from you.